0: Well, there's probably not much of, uh, of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the uh, central, or at least a central figure of interest uh, in our culture. In fact, there was a survey that uh, the Barna Research Group did uh, last year, and they concluded these five things. The vast majority of Americans believe that Jesus was a real person. Younger generations are increasingly less likely to believe that Jesus was or is the Son of God. Americans are divided on whether Jesus was sinless. A little more than half believe that he committed sins just like we do. Fourthly, people are conflicted between Jesus and good deeds as the way to heaven. And then fifthly, most most Americans say, oddly enough, that they've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that Jesus is a central figure in our American culture. People have different views of Jesus, and a lot of it's wrong, but he is a central figure in our culture. In fact, just this week, a presidential candidate was asked, as if this reporter knew what we'd be talking about here today at Northwest Community Church, a reporter asked a presidential candidate, who will remain nameless, in an interview, asked this question, who do you say Jesus is? His response was this, And I quote, Jesus to me is somebody I can think about for security and confidence. Somebody I can revere in terms of bravery and in terms of courage. And because I consider the Christian religion so important, somebody I can totally rely on in my own mind. Let me ask you this question right at the outside. If, if, if you believe that there is a Jesus, that there's a historical Jesus, is that enough? Because depending on how you answer that question, depending on where you are today, if most Americans believe that there was an historical figure named Jesus, then is that enough that we just believe that he, that he did exist? In fact, there is little dispute, even amongst uh, some of the greatest skeptics, that Jesus indeed is an historical person. There's overwhelming evidence for the existence uh, of Jesus Christ in both secular uh, and certainly biblical history. Flavius Josephus, in fact, the great Jewish uh, historian, in his antiquities, he refers to James as the brother of Jesus who was called Christ. He writes, At this time there was a wise man named Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who became his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. Josephus goes on to write, They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have encountered wonders. He really did live in the first century and and the most distributed book in all of uh, human history which is uh, the Bible makes it very clear in the New Testament it's the most complete and reliable record of a historical Jesus. It's a record of his life and his ministry and I would submit to you this morning his deity Many of the world's most followed religions have views about who Jesus is. And it's important for us, by the way, uh, to know who others think that Jesus is. Uh, Just last Friday, I was able to have uh, lunch with um, a young man that I met because he was a server at this little restaurant they call The Olive Garden, right? And um, there was a time in my life when I knew all the servers at the Olive Garden. Now I only know a, a few. But it was interesting how God sovereignly placed, I believe, this young man in my path, and we crossed. And over a period of months, um, we got to know each other so much so that when I would come in, he would address me by name. And uh, he's Mormon. And I I asked him several months ago, if, before he graduated from high school, he's graduating, he did just last week, I asked him if we could uh, get together and talk about Jesus. Uh, he's getting ready to go on his two-year mission uh, as a Mormon, and he said he would love to do that. And just last Friday, we spent an hour and a half together talking about who Jesus is. The Mormons believe that Jesus is a separate God from the Father, that he was created as a spirit child by a father and a mother in heaven. He's considered to be the elder brother of all men and of all spirit beings. Here's what Kyle, my friend, uh, needed to understand. He still needs to grasp a hold of. And that is that the Mormons believe that Jesus' death on the cross did not provide full atonement for sin. Which means that uh, Jesus is good, but Jesus is not enough. Jesus is something, but he's not quite enough. Judaism and Judaism, uh, Jesus is considered uh, to either to be an extremist, false Messiah or a good but martyred Jewish rabbi. In fact, there are even some Jews which refuse to recognize Jesus at all. In Hinduism, and it's very important for us to understand this, we have a lot of friends that are living in our community that have embraced Hinduism. Hindus see Jesus as a teacher, as a guru. He is a son of God, as are many others. His death did not atone for sin, and he did not rise from the dead. And then one of the world's fastest growing religious systems, Islam, In Islam, Muslims believe that Jesus is just one of up to to 124,000 prophets sent by God to various cultures. Abraham, Moses, and Muhammad are others, and Jesus, while a good man and a historical figure, he is not God, according to them. It's not simply enough to believe that Jesus was just a real person. It's imperative that we not only understand but that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Please hear me this morning. It is not enough to believe that Jesus historically existed. It is imperative that we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of the living God. In fact, in our church's doctrinal statement, we affirm this by the following words. In our doctrinal statement, Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Trinity, who is united forever with a true human nature by the miraculous conception of the Holy Spirit being born of a virgin? Thus, he is fully God and fully man. And some of you may sit there this morning, and you may say, "Well, do you understand that? That do you, I mean? Do you have you totally grasped a hold of it?" I say to people all the time, there are several of us in this church that have paper hanging on the walls that say that we should know everything. And yet, while we know these things, they are hard to understand and hard to grasp. How in Philippians 2, God could send his son Jesus to live amongst us and be fully God and fully man. I do not comprehend that. It blows my mind that the God of the universe would lower himself to live amongst people like me and like you. But it's imperative that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus emphatically stated this on several different occasions in the Gospels, and there are several other passages in Scripture, in fact, so many that we couldn't take the time this morning to go through a full study of Christology, the doctrine of Christ, and talk about all the passages uh, in Scripture that affirm his deity. Let me give you just a few. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. All we need to do in that passage is to look at the Jews' reaction to his statement to know that he was claiming to be God, not just kind of closely aligned with God, but that he was claiming to be God. Um, in fact, the, the statement made in verse 33 was, you, a mere man, claim to be God. They understood what he was doing. John 8, 58 is another example. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. I've eternally existed. I wasn't born just about 30 years ago. I've eternally existed. John reiterates the concept of of Jesus' deity. And I love this particular passage of Scripture in John chapter 1. John starts out his gospel account by saying this, In the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, John goes on to say, And the Word became flesh. Who's that? Jesus. Like, that's awesome. You should clap right there. We clapped for the graduates. You got to clap for that. The Word became Jesus. The God of the universe came to live amongst us. God became man. Acts 20, 28 tells us, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The blood of who? Jesus. Jesus is God. Thomas, the disciple, declared concerning Jesus in John chapter 20, My Lord and my God. He addressed Jesus that way. Jesus did not correct him. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 encourages us to wait for the coming of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's three possibilities about Jesus claiming divinity. The first possibility is that he knew he was not God. He knew it, but yet people, some people started buying into it. And so he just decided to kind of roll with the plan, right? You ever been in one of those situations where people thought something that you knew wasn't true, but since they went ahead and thought it, you just went ahead and went with it? That's a possibility, right? He knew he wasn't God, but he just continued to go along with it. In that case, he would be a liar. There's another possibility that just says he was delusional, right? I mean, he was a crazy prophet. He thought he was God, but he wasn't God. In that fact, he would be a lunatic. The only other possibility is that, indeed, he is God. And if he is God, then that makes him Lord. But what we believe about Jesus, about who he is and what he did, is critically important. In fact, Jesus is at the the very heart of Christianity. Without Jesus, there is no Christianity. Without Christ, there is no gospel. And Jesus knew this, when he walked the planet. He knew that what he was here to do was uh, imperative. It It was of the utmost importance to those people that would live on, that were living and would live on this planet because he had come to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And so, He's walking with his disciples. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 16. He's walking with his disciples and as he's walking and he's sitting and talking with his disciples uh, one night, he asks two questions of his disciples. If you've been at Northwest uh, uh, for some time, you may remember we talked about this passage about six months ago in our, in our Christmas uh, series. Jesus is there. He's with his disciples. Verse 13 of chapter 16 of Matthew says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, first question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's kind of a funny question. If you think about it, he's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be the Son of God. He's claiming uh, a pretty high claim, a pretty high standard. And if you're one of his disciples and he's asking hey, what are people saying about me? What's the the word on the street here? It's important to understand that Jesus was not unaware of what people uh, were thinking and saying about him. Uh, It it wasn't as if uh, Jesus didn't know. Jesus was still God. So he had the ability to be able to look at somebody and know exactly what they were thinking, even though they may be saying something different. Wouldn't that be a great skill to have? Wouldn't it be great after church as as you're interacting and as you're exchanging all of your pleasantries, if you were able to look at a person and know they're saying pleasant, nice things to you, you could really get into their head and know exactly what they were thinking about you? Wouldn't that be a great gift to have as a pastor? I would love that. I would love to know right now what many of you are thinking. Even as I'm speaking, you're thinking about those things over there, you know. Jesus had that ability, so it wasn't the fact that he didn't know what these people were thinking about him. But he asked, who do people say that I am? He wanted his disciples to think about, to think carefully about the popular opinions of who he was. Now, it's it's oftentimes when we read passages like this, you, you look in the Gospels and you think, well, how could those people not know that he was Jesus, that he was the Son of God? How could they not know that? How could they not understand that? We have the benefit of having the completed canon of Scripture, and we can read it from cover to cover, and we see the whole story as we've been covering in this series. We know the beginning. We see the plan unfold. We see Jesus born. We see him crucified. We see him rise again. We see the pastoral epistles and everything that Paul and others wrote. We have the ability to do that. These people didn't have that. They had the Old Testament. They knew that a Messiah had been prophesied, about, but they didn't know who he was. When people were confronted with the statement that Jesus was God, there was an immediate intuitive shock. Everyone who met Jesus was confused if you look at the gospel record. No one understood him. He said things no one ever had the guts to say before. He cared about those who nobody else seemed to care about. He turned upside down all the acceptable yet ridiculous social norms of the day. He spent time with people that had bad reputations. He called simple, uneducated, broken, hurting, sinful people to be his followers. In fact, John 7 verse 46, I think, sums it up when it says that "...no one ever had spoken like Jesus." And then when we consider the rationale or logic of the claims to be the Son of God, it seems patently absurd. It's the claim of a man who who came from a woman's womb, yet that woman was a virgin. It's a man that grew up from a baby to be a man who was hungry and tired and he suffered and then ultimately he died and yet he was claiming to be divine. It's not only shocking but it seems logically self-contradictory, doesn't it? When you think about us as human beings that we by essence we are temporal, we are finite, we are fallible, we are mortal. God by essence is exactly the opposite. He's eternal, he's infinite, he's infallible, he's immortal. And you ask yourself the question, how can one person have two opposite essences simultaneously? How can he simultaneously be God, yet at the same time be man? The great passage there in Philippians 2 that talk about God coming to this earth to live amongst us and to die a death that we deserve that he didn't in order that we might be reconciled to the relationship with his father that we were created to have. And so the disciples answer him in verse 14, they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets these identifications were standard speculations for anyone who stood above the common people anybody that they saw they would assume often that he was one of these people that he was John the Baptist Jerry talked about John the Baptist last week Herod had even propagated the theory that maybe Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated that he had come back to life what a scary thought for Herod to have after taking the head of John the Baptist Second speculation that he was Elijah. Elijah was always on the list because of the last verses in the Old Testament in Malachi, which say, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. In fact, I didn't realize this till just this week, that in, in modern uh, Jewish Passover celebrations... They often have an empty chair there, and it's reserved for Elijah in the hope that he will one day come to announce the Messiah's arrival. Others mention Jeremiah and, and other prophets, and it's interesting to note that in each one of these instances, whoever they named as the possibility of who Jesus was, they considered him to be a forerunner of the Messiah, but not the Messiah himself. They obviously couldn't deny the supernatural things that were happening, all the miracles that Jesus was performing. They accepted him as a good and an interesting man, but not as the Messiah and the Savior. They claim as close as they could to ultimate truth without accepting truth. That's fascinating to me because I think there's a parallel to where many of us live in our modern American culture. There are so many of us that are coming really, really close to who Jesus is and what that means for us both now and eternally, and yet we fail to accept ultimate truth. The surprising thing is that none of the disciples said that, well, some are suggesting that you are Jesus, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Apparently, Jesus didn't uh, fit match up to anyone's messianic expectations. You remember we've said often in our teaching uh, here at Northwest about what these people were looking for. They they weren't looking for somebody that looked like Jesus. They were looking for a conqueror from somebody that would free them from the tyranny that they were experiencing uh, through the Romans somebody that would come in on a white horse and rescue them and make things better economically for them and socially for them and would restore their rightful position on the world stage. They imagine that Jesus, when he came, would have a much different agenda than what he actually had. If you think about it, Jesus never held any political office. In fact, he lived in relative obscurity for 30 out of the 33 years of his existence on this planet. He never ruled any nation. He never commanded any armies. He never knew any Roman emperors. Instead, for three and a half years, all he did was go around helping hurting, broken, dying people. That's what he did. So Jesus, in verse 15, asked the second question. He said to them, Who do you say? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was at this point, after months of Peter and the other disciples walking with Jesus and listening to Jesus. I mean, you think about it. Who did they think he was when those disciples who were fishermen left their nets and just followed him? What kind of people do that? Can you imagine somebody coming by your lawn, you're mowing the lawn, and they say, I'm Jesus, come follow me and be my disciples. You leave the lawnmower running and you walk away. That's what these guys had done. And now finally, after about two and a half years of walking with Jesus, Peter speaks for the rest of them, and he gives what is one of the greatest statements for anybody who is a follower of Jesus that's ever been made, He says, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living the Living God. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Messiah, God's predicted, long-awaiting deliverer. Without hesitation, Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah. Whereas multitudes of Jews believed him to be uh, only the, uh, uh, the precursor to the real Messiah. Peter was declaring, you are God. In fact, I, I wish that you were able to read it this morning in the original Greek language because it's fascinating. In the Greek text, this is so forceful. It's as forceful as any confession could be. It's only ten words. But in it, the definite article, the, occurs four times. Listen to it again. It reads like this. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the God, the living one. It's about as forceful as it could ever be said in the Greek language. It was so true and such an important confession that Jesus pointed out that it wasn't in the same category as everything else Peter had said the rest of his life you got to understand, Jesus has been walking with this dude for about two and a half years now. There's got to be times, you know know he's the son of God, you know he has infinite knowledge, he understands, but he's got to be going, what the heck was I thinking when I asked him to follow me? In fact, we've referred uh, to Peter, uh, commentators refer to him as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Peter constantly was sticking his foot in his mouth saying things, and Jesus had to have been looking at him. In fact, often in the the gospel record, we have recorded that Jesus basically, well, one time he calls him Satan, okay? Um, But other times he had to have looked at him and said, what are you talking about? Have you been listening to anything that I've said? And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by man. In other words, you couldn't have possibly said this on your own. You're not that smart. You say things much differently than what you just said. Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, it was a result of specific divine revelation. And so also today, the first and most important thing any person needs to understand about Jesus is that he is the very God of very God, as one of the ancient creeds puts it. It is not necessarily just that you need to understand that Jesus was a historical figure. You have to know and understand and affirm that Jesus is God your very soul, your eternal destiny depends on whether or not you and I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, if he's not the Son of God, his birth doesn't mean anything more than your birth means or my birth means. If he wasn't the Son of God, then his death, how tragic it might have been, doesn't mean anything more than your death or my death will mean someday. But if he is the Son of God, his death would have ultimate value for people like you and like me that find ourselves in a desperate condition because we were born in sin. Let me ask you this this morning. What does the way that you live your life testify about who you believe Jesus is? You see, I believe that it's possible for you to believe in a historical Jesus and yet not be a true follower of Jesus. I'm convinced this morning that there are so many who call themselves Christians and are sitting in churches just like this all across America this morning. People who give verbal affirmation saying that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but the testimony of their life gives evidence of a life that has not been radically transformed and changed by that Jesus who is the Son of God. It involves so much more than just mental assent. And I'm so convinced. We don't talk about this a lot at Northwest. We should talk about it more than we do. It's so easy for us to come in here and confess that there was a Jesus and yet miss the fact that he is the very son of the very God. In fact, just a short time after Peter affirmed his belief in the deity of Christ. Jesus made this declaration to his disciples, and we oftentimes will teach on this particular passage here because it's it's so great, especially in the Greek language. It's so emphatic. The emphasis is so strong. And yet Jesus, when you get down to verse 24, it's not too long after that conversation that he has with his disciples that verse 24 says, Then Jesus told his disciples this, Listen as I read. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Does that sound like American Christianity? Let him deny himself and take up his cross. You take up a cross this week? Christ follower, have you ever taken up a cross? Follow me. Jesus goes on to say, for whoever would save his life, if that's what what it's about, it's just about saving your own life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life gives up all of this because he believes there's something more, that I'm not a citizen of this planet. My citizenship is someplace else. Whoever loses his life, Jesus said to his disciples, for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man? Jesus said, if he gains The whole world and he forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's a tragic fact that there are so many people that are intellectually convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet they never ever place their trust in him alone as their savior. They miss the gospel which is more than just a head knowledge. I believe there are many people that are going to miss heaven by about 18 inches. The intellectual understanding as opposed opposed to a transformed, renewed, changed heart. Because let me tell you this, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, the very son of the very God, your life is transformed, your life is changed. I don't care what American evangelicalism says to you, that you can live any way that you want and and yet still have a transformed, changed life. If any man is in Christ, Paul wrote, he is a new creation. The old is gone and there are new things that are constantly coming into his life. We call that sanctification. The way that we live our lives gives great evidence to what we say about who Jesus really is, because if he is God, then he's Lord. Tragically, the eternal destiny of those who have only an intellectual understanding of Jesus is the same as those who are on this earth right now, but refuse to acknowledge him for who he is. Isn't that sad? That you could sit in here this morning in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church, Give an intellectual affirmation to a historical Jesus. Sing songs to him. And yet, tragically, your eternal destination is the same as the person that right now denies that Jesus is the Son of God. There's a big difference between intellectual understanding and a transformed, changed life through the gospel. And so Jesus said earlier in his ministry in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus went around, he found lots of people that were saying and doing lots of different things in his name. But he said, only the one that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is probably the greatest application that there could ever be to a sermon, and that is for you to affirm in your hearts that Jesus is God. Because you said you see, Jesus says there's a risk of having religious character without having a renewed heart. Isn't that true? So many people that I know of that don't name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior and affirm him as God... But they have good character. There's a risk of having religious character without having a renewed heart. There's a risk of doing a lot of religious activity without really being a follower of Jesus. Do you understand that this morning? I hope that you do. There's a risk of standing up here on a stage and playing an instrument or or singing and leading the rest of us in worship. There's a risk of being a youth leader. There's a risk of being a children's ministry leader. There's a a risk of doing a lot of religious activity without being a true follower of Jesus. Because if you're a true follower of Jesus, if Jesus is God, if He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then that gospel transforms, it changes, it renews your heart. There's a risk of attending a lot of Sunday services without having a relationship with the one who's being worshipped. There's a risk of becoming fluent talkers about spiritual things while never truly having laid hold of what it really means to place your trust in Christ alone as your Savior. And I would do you a disservice in our series that's fast coming to a conclusion if you miss the point that this is the point. <laughs> that Jesus is, was, and will always be the Son of God. And if Jesus is God, then He's Lord. All right? He can't be God and not be Lord. If He's God, if He's the very God of the very God, as the ancient creeds say, if He is God, then He is Lord. And if He is Lord, then He's worth living our whole lives for. Not just an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, as some of us are in the habit of doing. No, He's your Lord Uh, 15 minutes from now, when you get in that car and you get on that road and people start driving you crazy, and you, he's still Lord. He's Lord tomorrow when you get to that job that you don't like. He's still Lord. He's Lord when you go into that doctor's office and he gives you news that you don't want to hear. He's still Lord. He's still God. And if he's God and he's Lord, then he's worthy of your whole life being lived for his glory and for his mission, which is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I fear way too many times in churches just like ours all across, not just this country, but this planet. We preach a gospel that is nothing more than just a, some type of verbal, mental ascent without a transformed and a changed heart. God, if we're convinced of anything that we see further in the Gospels, we see that these disciples' lives were transformed and changed. In a few weeks, we'll talk about Pentecost, and we'll hear how boldly that disciple with the foot-shaped mouth preached because he was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. The Gospel changes. It transforms. It radicalizes people that we live lives that are very different from those around us because we have a citizenship that is in a different place. We have a a mission that is much bigger, much greater than anything we could ever do for ourselves. And I fear that some of us have bought into nothing more than a false gospel, just simply saying some sweet words and singing some sweet songs for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. God, help us. Help us. Use your spirit right now to convict those that may be in this room that are living a lie. They know lots about you, but they really don't know you as God, the very God of the very God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the testimony of Peter. I pray that we will live our lives this week in a way that we bring you glory and in a way which we live on Your mission, which is the propagation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God became man, that he lived among us, that he suffered and bled and died on a cross for sins that he did not commit in order that our sin debt might be paid in full, that we might be reconciled to the relationship we were created to have. May we be committed to sharing that good news, living our lives on mission with your mission. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.